running now, huh? Okay, fine. We are now on the air. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Bone Ditch by Ian Bird. My name is Ian Bird and this is Bone Ditch, my collection of strange and eldritch short stories set in a world where catastrophe is an infectious virus spread by a long dead witch who's practically perfect in every way. You can always find out more about the Bone Ditch project at my website, www.boneditch.wordpress.com, and on Twitter I'm at Mr Carapace. Meanwhile, this is our 15th Gobbit and our first love story. Like the last five stories, it's completely standalone, so first-time listeners can fit right in. But if you did happen to listen to our eighth Gobbit, Health and Safety Gone Mad, you might remember one or two falls from grace. This story is called A Bum in the Coven, and I hope you like it. Walker Took was 22 years old and living on a beach when he fell in love with the witch. Just the year before he had dropped out of university, sold his late father's investments, broken his mother's heart and left London forever. Now he was an English-born hobo-boho barman, living out of his car on the Californian coast, moving up and down Highway 1, chasing the weather and staying out of reach of his potential. He dropped enough French vocabulary into his English accent to maintain a sophisticated mien and always tried his best never to look over his shoulder. His father had killed himself almost 20 years before, overwork was the general diagnosis, and Walker had no intention of putting on the same suit. So he took temp rolls up and down the coast between San Francisco and Los Angeles and took care only to work in those establishments where his English accent, French tongue and guitar string calloused fingers ensured that every tip was worth the flirt. He hadn't slept that night. The bar had closed at 2am and then he'd been invited back to a New York stockbroker's holiday apartment. Three hours of playing all the different markets and he had said his goodbyes, wandering back along coastal roads to his dunes. The sun was coming up as he arrived, so he went straight to his beach. He was still a bit too drunk to surf. He intended just to catch his breath and bask. The witch was there before him, doing her yoga down on the sand. She wasn't a local witch. Her skin was pale, not California tanned, and she posed a little too self-consciously. Not on display, but certainly under suspicion. She was young and tall, Older than him, not in quite as good shape, and Walker could tell that she was magic. His father hadn't had a superstitious bone in his body, and look how that had panned out, so Walker always took care to read the world a little closer than he had to. It was something in the way that the wind hung back from her, perhaps, or in the manner that the gulls were watching. Maybe it was the ritualistic moves through which she iterated, spelling something he couldn't read with her body in the space she left in the air. Or maybe it was just that diagnostic tool that had worked so well for men down through the centuries. You knew a woman was a witch by the way they made you feel about them. She finished her routine and lay down on the sand, stretched out, deeply breathing. What was that called? Pranayama? She had tried it once with a girl in London, but such careful focus on his breathing had only given him the fear, and he had run from the prospect ever since. Concentrating so closely on his breathing had just reminded him of how few breaths any of us ever have. The witch lay like that for a further 15 minutes before finally sitting up and looking around her. She immediately spied Walker sitting on the dunes and cocked her head, all eyes on him. Can I help you? she asked. She was English like him. Would you like some breakfast? he asked. Convince me in 50 words, she said. Okay. There's a mushroom called Clathrus archery, he said. It's an egg, but it hatches long red tendrils that reach out for you like tentacles or fingers to shake you by the hand. It's also called the Devil's Fingers, or the Octopus Stinkhorn. It stinks like rotten flesh, which attracts flies that become coated in its spores. She smiled. That's 56 words. It's made you hungry, though, hasn't it? So she followed him to his car, parked under a ghost gum tree just back from the shoreline at the start of the dunes. At the back of the car, he set up a gas stove and skillet, then scrambled some eggs with non-tentacled mushrooms. He brewed some coffee in a battered pot and tore some bread off a baguette he had bought the day before. He passed the witch a plate, the only other one he owned, and a mug, also the only other one he owned. They sat with their backs to the car, looking down the beach towards the shore. Have you ever eaten octopus? the witch asked him. Yeah, he said. You shouldn't, you know, she replied. They're as smart as apes. They have personalities and souls. They remember things. If you're going to eat an octopus, you might as well eat people. They're delicious, though, Walker said. So the ones you ate must have had good memories. OK, I won't do it again. She smiled as she ate her breakfast. This is good, thank you. Are you stopping here long? Walker asked. No, I'm visiting some friends. I have places to be quite soon. Where are you going? He asked. She smiled again. This is going to sound strange, but I've come to visit the end of the world. Then I'm going back to the land of the living. There's further west than California, Walker said. It's not quite the end of the world here. 
you'd be surprised, she said. I'm Walker, said Walker. Hello, Walker, I'm Belinda, said the witch. So, how can you find the end of the world here, he asked. Some friends of mine have a set-up here. They're of the fatalistic bent. I'm more optimistic. You think you can survive the end of the world? According to my friends, I already have. She had a tattoo tracing up her arm. Brilliant emerald vines, intricate as spiderwebs, threaded through with delicate, glaring eyeballs. Walker noticed that some of the eyeballs were double-pupiled, like an octopus. It's going to take more than octopus devil mushrooms to make you notice me next time, isn't it? Walker said with a smile. So we'd better keep this going for as long as possible, hadn't we? They talked for a while, until Walker suddenly realised that his eyes were closed. He opened them quickly, but the sun had moved several degrees across the sky, and he was alone. Oh, God damn it! he said. But she came to his bar three nights later. She was not quite so pale anymore, and this time she had a friend, an older woman with a careful stare and hands covered with burns and scars. Two beers, please, said Belinda. Hello again, he replied. She looked at him blankly for a second before recognising him. Oh, yes, the sleepy dune bug, how are you? Walker set down the two beers and grinned. I deserved that. Sorry, it had been a long night. Don't apologise. Clearly I should have been more scintillating. This is Bonnie, by the way. He smiled at Belinda's friend. So, are you a mechanic or a carpenter of some... Suddenly the door to the bar burst open and three men stormed in, armed to the fangs with cameras. Their flashes ignited in the gloom of the room, rapid-fire illumination, detonating shadows and bloodying the faces of the people in the bar with shards and stains of bone-white light. Walker spun back and dived behind the bar, pulling his mobile phone from his pocket. Crouched behind the bar, he fired off some pictures in retaliation, but it was useless. There were too many bystanders to shoot the cameraman clearly. He switched the camera phone to automatic and darted for the fire exit, video footage blasting all the way. The cameramen split up, avoiding the camera phone, but still concentrating their fire towards the exit through which Walker had escaped, shooting pictures all the way as they marched closer. Dancers and drinkers got in the way and were mercilessly photographed, one after the other. No one would get out of there anonymous. Bonnie was snapped three times at close range by one of the cameramen, trying to push by her. Belinda kneed him hard in the groin and he crumpled. She grabbed the camera and smashed it hard on the countertop before he even hit the ground. We have to get out of here, she gasped at Bonnie. The two women darted for the fire exit, following Walker, shielding their heads from any retaliatory photography. Outside the back of the bar they saw Walker crouch behind a car down the alley that led out to the main road. The sides of the alley were bursting with light as a fourth cameraman, some kind of sniper, covering the only other means of escape, fired frame after frame at the car, trying to get a clear shot at the barman. Come out, Mr Took. You know what we want. Give up before the news guys get here. You won't stand a chance against them. You'll be blown coast to coast by morning. Bonnie and Belinda ran to Walker and crouched down with him. Who the hell are they? said Belinda. Paparazzi. Walker gasped. I'm sorry you got caught up in that. I've been staying ahead of them for over a year. I knew I got sloppy last week. Yes, last week. That blonde backpacker obsessed with social media. He'd been tagged, but had hoped his face hadn't been front and centre. The backpacker must have used his name in a tweet or whatever. What are you talking about? Belinda said. They want to hang me out on the front page. News at 11. I don't think they've got a clear portrait yet, but it's only a matter of time. Oh, for heaven's sake. Bonnie stood up and took 15 shots to the face in less than a second. But she was already reaching for the thing in her purse, and in less than two more seconds she had pulled on the ring at the back of the emergency flare and doused the alleyway in a barrage of strontium nitrate and magnesium. Come with me if you want to live, she ordered, and dragged Belinda and Walker out the alley, past the cameraman, on his knees now and cradling his face. Can you give me a lift, Walker said, and Belinda looked at her friend. Bonnie nodded. Get in, she said, gesturing to an ancient black battered Pontiac. They roared off, xenon flashes reflecting harmlessly off the impervious body of the car. Can you take me back to the beach? Walker asked. They drove to the beach, fast, but Walker's car was already surrounded by men in combat waistcoats, fingering their cameras while colleagues set up a high-caliber camcorder on a tripod and erected spot lamps to frame the vehicle. Bonnie kept on driving. Where are we going? Walker asked. Our place, Bonnie replied. They drove for about a quarter of an hour, finally reaching a small dirt road that led to a concrete bunker, one storey high and covered in ivy. Eyes seemed to peer out from the vines, glinting in the headlights. Bonnie parked on a metal plate set into the ground, which began slowly to sink once she had switched off the engine. The plate dropped underground and the hole above them was filled by two smaller plates lifted into place by hydraulics, killing all the starlight. The plate stopped dropping and the two women got out of the car. Walker followed. He was standing in the pitch darkness, unable to gauge the size or shape of the room around him. If it was a room... Instincts millennia old suggested a cave, or a grotto, or outer space. 
sensory deprivation. He thought he'd gone deaf until he realised he'd just been holding his breath. He let out a long exhalation and finally the lights came on. With the lights out, he had been in something prehistoric and endless with two complete strangers, but now this was just an underground concrete garage, and over there were the two women he had met in a bar. Belinda smiled at him, but Bonnie looked more reserved, or suspicious. He tried out a smile. Thanks, ladies, that was a close shave. Those men were journalists. Not quite, they were... they were tentacles, looking for something. They found me, or at least they might have. Are you in trouble? Bonnie asked. I'm not a criminal, but... Belinda looked at him and saw him, and he remembered that she was a witch. But you're infamous, she said. They took him out of the garage into the building proper. Although there was a bunker above them, all the living quarters seemed to be below ground, in a nest of concrete corridors underneath the California swarm above. The walls were brightly painted, orange, pink and green swirls and tendrils and fingers, but Walker could sense the grey concrete beneath. The women led him deeper into the grotto until they reached at last a huge crater behind double doors that looked as if they should be opening into an operating theatre. Entering on a mezzanine level, they walked down a spiral staircase into the carcass of the room. It felt like a nest. All of Walker's instincts continued to inform him that he was deep underground, encased in concrete. But this salon felt nurturing and warm. Bright, rich fabrics were everywhere. Rugs and tapestries and swatches and throws, and the furniture was low and soft. Light came from individual spot lamps, muted by silks and scarves and mirrors, and the air was warm with incense. Painted onto the ceiling was a huge mural glittering in gold and orange copper in the lamplight. The mural was that of a wheel, a huge circle with a second circle at its centre, with four equidistant diameters crossing through the circles like spokes. Apart from the lamps, there didn't seem to be anything mechanical or electronic in the room, and Walker felt the tightness in the back of his neck relax slightly. No one could find him here. Prehistoric tendrils of awareness stretched out in reaction from the oldest part of his brain, reminding him of what Belinda had said of the people who lived here, that they believed in the end of the world. Was this a nuclear bunker? You can stay here tonight, said Bonnie, smiling at last. Bill, can you get him a room set up while I tell Sulis we have a visitor? She left them alone and Belinda gestured for Walker to sit down. Where are we? he asked. My friend's place. It doesn't have a name, they just call it the Grotto. On maps, it's just an old observatory. That dome up there, this shelter underneath, isn't on any plans. This is a fallout shelter. Pretty much, she said. Civil defence bunkers were fairly common up and down the west coast after Pearl Harbour and the start of the Cold War. Little communities would get together and pool their resources, build something big for all of them, rather than just something pokey in the back garden for one or two people. Sadly, the Red Scare embedded the idea that these places were actually communist hotbeds, literally the socialist underground, and they fell out of favour. Most were de demolished by the early 60s, but a few fell between the cracks, so to speak. My friends bought this one up almost half a century ago and spent the next few years making sure that all traces of it were torn up. In case the world ends, Walker said. I told you, they think it's already ended. How does that work, he asked. Well, they'd explain it better than me, but they say that several decades ago, something died and we're now living on the rotting corpse. Things falling apart, the centre not holding, that sort of thing. Mere anarchy loosed upon the world, said Walker. Exactly, so, you know, it's not all bad news. She found him a small concrete room with a cheap wooden bunk. The blankets were clean, but smelt slightly musty, of some apocalypse that might have already happened. He was used to sleeping in the back of an old car, staring up at star fields and listening to the waves on the shore. Now he was planted deep underground, no, not even planted, entombed in a sea of dead stone. There was another mural on one of the walls. This one was of a pale face, framed with long, thick tendrils of midnight black hair, the skin so tight across the bone that the face could well have been simply a skull. The eyes on the face were a deep purple, and there were three of them, the third eye peering from the face's forehead. It wasn't exactly a reassuring portrait. Friend of yours, Walker said. Belinda's smile hardened. Friends pushing it. Bonnie walked into the room, a tall blonde woman next to her. The new woman looked to be in her late sixties and had a purple shawl drawn around her. Her face was sharp, like a bird's, and her eyes darted about so quickly that it would have been easy to lose count of them. She reached out a hand towards Walker and he shook it. Hello, Walker. My name's Sulis. Glad we could give you somewhere to stay for the night. I really appreciate it, he said. Would you mind telling me who it is that we're hiding you from? His grin wasn't convincing. I can't go into that. Then perhaps we were premature offering you shelter. If you want me to, Walker said, I will go, of course I will, but, but I wish you wouldn't ask. Are you dangerous? Sulis asked. I'm not, I promise you. And what are your promises worth? I don't have a lot of money, he said. I'm less interested in money than peace of mind. 
Sula said. That would be easier, said Walker, if you could do me one more favour. Please, please, if you let me stay, please don't investigate me. Sulis's skull sharpened, in case there was any doubt that this was a predator's physiognomy. Would you explain that to me, please? My, my enemies. My enemies have told stories about me that make it impossible for anyone to have any sympathy for me. My name's been poisoned, literally poisoned. I'm responsible for my friends here, said Sulis. I wouldn't be meeting my obligations if I put them in, in danger. I'm not dangerous, Walker said, harder than he had intended. I'm not, but you won't believe that if you listen to the stories about me. I'm not sure I believe it now, said Sulis. But we're in a grey area at least, and I'll take doubt over damnation. That's very smooth of you, said Sulis, as if you've said that before. Belinda stepped forward. I'll vouch for him, she said. That changed things. Sulis looked pained, but Walker could tell that the older woman respected his witch from the beach. Be careful, Belinda. Don't speak for sins you can't see. Do you know him? You know me, Belinda said. I've smelled saints and I've smelled fiends. He doesn't smell of either. All right, we'll revisit this in the morning. Thank you, he said. But first I'm going to need something in exchange, a show of faith. I'm going to need your name. I've already told you, you mustn't... Don't freak out. I won't do anything with your name, poisoned as it is. I'll just have it. Your real name, by the way. Don't bother to lie to me. I don't want whatever mask you give to your bosses and girlfriends. Ma'am, don't call me that, unless you know what it means. Your name will be safe from me. I just want to hold it for the night. Walker nodded. Fine, but I am trusting you. My name's Walter. Walter Took. Welcome to our home, Walter. Sleep well. You're our guest, so you'll be safe here. But my advice to you is to sleep with the door locked and stay in your room until Belinda comes for you in the morning. The women left him. He lay back on the bunk, staring at the mural. Then he checked his phone for the photos he had taken of the paparazzi. He didn't recognise their faces, which worried him. His reputation had been viral for months now, but now it felt airborne. Anyone could catch it and turn on him. The woman with three eyes watched him as he fell asleep at last. Of course he woke from time to time. The corridors echoed with footsteps and voices all night. That's bunker living for you, he supposed. But the sounds, they weren't right, were they? The words that occasionally dropped out of the muffled burbling through the concrete walls were wrong somehow, leaden with some intelligence he couldn't recognise. An incorrect grammar, a deranged vocabulary, mirror writing, thoughts from an octopus brain. He was half asleep, of course the logic was perverted, but the unfathomable scoundrel sounds that stamped up and down outside his cell seemed to have faith in themselves, seemed to lack doubt, seemed to be full of a passionate intensity. He crept from his bed and hesitated by the door, hand on the handle, ear to the wall. The women outside were discussing him. Of course they were, how could they not? His days and nights would be numbered, and he would never again see the sky. The voices outside laughed, and he sensed that they were inviting him to open the door. Suddenly scared by his desire to open the door and see the women, he scurried back to his bed again and hid under the covers like a child. He must have fallen asleep because at some point he had a dream. He was suddenly inside an egg, pure and curved, a beautiful calm grey nestled underground. But then he hatched, shattering the purity and pouring out furious crimson grasping fingers surging out into the world, stinking of corruption, angry red and grasping. Worse, that stench that came from him attracted creeping, swarming things, tiny, invasive, undeniable flies and worms and scorpions and spiders and crabs and mites and ticks and millipedes that descended on him. As he reached out of the egg, a corrupting thing, growing and growing more powerful, the vermin crawled over him, smearing themselves in his stink and somehow becoming infected with him as they devoured him. Satiated, the vermin fled, but they flew off heavier than before, weighed down with his meat in their bellies and his eggs in his flesh. These hideous segmented things, viral and untrustworthy, would spread him further and further. Soon, everyone would be an egg, nurturing a furious, angry red hand, ready to burst free and grow, stinking of death and corruption, grasping to steal something good from the world. He awoke underground, scared and trapped and feeling steeped in seeping, sticky guilt. Toxic guilt, infectious guilt, viral guilt. It took him five minutes to convince himself that he hadn't done anything wrong. Walker sat up in his bed and wished that he smoked. He would have to get out of here, that was all, find some way out. He'd have to abandon the car. He carried what was important with him always. He didn't need to go back for anything. 
Another dead end, but anonymous job somewhere. It would be fine. He'd make new friends. Some kind-hearted woman with a secret would probably fall in love with him. He'd probably help solve a mystery or thwart some fiends before moving on again to another town. Everyone hated and was looking for Walter Took, but where it counted and had weight and significance, he was Walker. So that was what he would be. His door flew open and Belinda was there, suddenly, staring at him. I thought the door was locked, Walker said, helplessly, before whatever was in him that thought anything in the world could be hopeful or good shriveled and died under the weight of her glare. That glare, the one he'd been walking away from for over a year. How? Belinda said, eyes stained red with blood. How could you? I told you, he started to stammer. I told you not to look. Belinda, I tried to warn you. She had a knife in her hand. Don't try and talk your way out of this, Walter. You knew what I was when you met me. You can't tell a witch not to look. Please. The witch stepped into the room and closed the door behind her. She locked it, properly this time. She didn't take her eyes off him. You're getting off easy, she said. My sisters, they will know who you are as well before you know it. They aren't as nice as I am. They won't just want you dead. Belinda, what you are, this was always going to happen to you. You're a killer. What we are, what we all are, this was always going to happen to you. We are witches, and it's better this comes from me, believe me. This is a mercy. And the horrible part was that Belinda was right. Walker knew, somewhere deep inside, that he deserved this, and that this would always have been his escape route. She moved towards him and raised the knife. He knew he wasn't going to defend himself. He knew he would die buried from the sky. But then the door opened, unlocked after all, and Sulis and Bonnie were there. The assassin hesitated, looking back at her friends. Do you know what he did? she asked. Sulis nodded her head. You have to stop. I know what we did to him, she said. Belinda's look of contempt suddenly became something shameful and furtive. The horrified and vengeful rage was suddenly gone. It's true, said Bonnie. I've seen his name in the ledger. He's in our list of names. We have to stand back. He's not on the menu. What are you talking about, Walker said. But they ignored him. He was almost grateful for this. He had never seen the loathing ignited by his reputation dissipate so quickly. He had thought of it as a child. Once you had it, it was there for the rest of your life. The three women left him alone in his cell. He sat down on his cot and felt vulnerable and guilty. He had to get out of there. The mural of the dead woman with three eyes smiled at him, telling him everything. The women gave him his space, and when he left his cell, they maintained a distance he liked to assume was respectful and not simply there to help them resist the urge to exterminate him. The first woman he met, who he recognised, was Bonnie. Although there was no daylight down in the bunker, now that it was morning, it was easier to see clearly, and Walker noticed that she was in her fifties, probably, but still younger than him, somehow. She moved with grace, and her skin was clear, pale but tanned. She was Californian, he decided. Even down here in these apocalyptic catacombs, she seemed to belong. Her smile was genuinely warm. She showed fangs, but didn't bear them. She just wanted him to see that they weren't bloodstained, that there was no meat between her teeth. The knowledge of exactly how to dismantle him, like a mechanic, was not the same as the intent to destroy him, Walker recognised. He was scared of this woman, but he could see that Bonnie didn't mean him any harm. I heard what happened, she said, and I'm sorry. I don't know what you're talking about, Walker replied. Make the most of that, Bonnie said with a smile, but I'm afraid we've something else to worry about now. Come with me. Bonnie led Walker up through the catacombs into the dome structure above ground. At the top of the building was a small tower, a cramped vantage on this world left on the other side of Armageddon. Walker Took was glad to be alive. He was always glad to be alive. His father had taken a walk off a roof under that same sky. Dad hadn't any vision, hadn't been able to see what his son saw now. The Californian sun was bright and sufficiently south and coastal to be scrubbed clean of smog. The air was sweet. Walker imagined citrus and sea salt, and the sky was high and blue. There was the sound of surf crashing close, but closer than that was the breeze through the trees, a massage of green beneath the deep blue of everything good, the only view he would ever be granted of the reliable chaos of the infinite. If it hadn't been for the end of the world, he could have loved this place. Because circling the perimeter of the building on the other side of a simple iron fence were dozens and dozens of them. They walked with shuddering clumsiness, weighed down by heavy cameras and equipment. They peered through their mechanical lenses in a world of their own, unable to see life, only prey. They were dishevelled, ugly. They stank of their voyeurism, their parasitic need for his story. They had no story to tell of their own. They were driven by their hunger for what had happened to him, for what he had done to others. 
blank men, hollow men. They were terrifying. There was nothing to them except what they would do to him when they got him, when they called his name. Worse than cannibals, they would eat who he was and spit out the rest. And now they had found him. I think we need to talk, said Bonnie. Sulis, Belinda and the three other women were waiting in the underground nest. They all wore the same tattoo tracing up their arms of a delicate but complicated growth of ivy studded with eyeballs. The paparazzi followed us, Bonnie told the others. Well, evidently, Sulis replied. What do they want? A younger woman asked Walker. They want an interview, he told them. They want my side of the story. The police aren't there, said another of the younger women. It'll only be a matter of time, Walker continued. I'm not technically a fugitive, but that's only because no one's given it any real thought yet. If those creatures outside eat enough of me, spread my name about far enough, then the powers that be will work out a way of making me a criminal. And then they'll be able to break in, said Sulis. I'm sorry, he said. The women looked at him hard. Only now did it occur to him that he hadn't seen any men here since he had arrived. If you want me to go, it's too late for that, said Sulis. Is it? Blinder asked, and Walker crumpled a little. His poison was in her now. It would be there forever. This had happened before to lots of times in the last year. He had to get away for these people. Seeing him through their eyes was a horrible thing. It is too late, Sulis continued. He's a rotting pig, tossed over the walls of a besieged community. He's already poisoned the water. If we get rid of him now, we don't stand a chance of working out a cure. We'll be tainted by what he's done, and then by what we have done in retaliation. And besides, like I said, we owe him. So we need to give him shelter. Asylum. Sulis turned to the three women he didn't know. Do you know what he's accused of? She asked them. Only the rumours, they said. According to him, that's all there is. No, said the youngest, a blonde woman of no more than twenty, paler than the dead snow. If it was only a rumour, it wouldn't be this pestilential. There's something corrosive here that's worse than innuendo, isn't there? Is Shreeberinen right? Belinda asked. When everyone is lying about you, the truth feels smaller in comparison and you feel a particular ownership over that truth. You want to nurture it, feed it like glowing embers on a dark night. And in this way, you sometimes feed your truth a few nourishing and embellishing lies just to bolster it, just to make it stronger. Walker knew this. She is right, he said at last. They say that I was involved in the death of Carly Shanksmare. The room turned against him as one. The words were a virus that transformed feeling and killed empathy. Suddenly, even with no proof... He was something perverted and no longer a stranger. But I didn't. I swear I didn't. One of the older women shrugged. I'm assuming everyone else here knows who Carly Shanksmare is. Sulis laughed. Sorry, Vesica. Carly Shanksmare is, was, a singer. She died mysteriously last year in London. She was Shreeberinen's age, wasn't she? She was very, very popular. Wrote all her own songs, very smart, very pretty, a lot of future ahead of her. She had... Crossover appeal, isn't that what they say? Walker nodded. Yes. His voice was a bitter bark now, like Wormwood. Everyone who knew her loved her. She'd only been public for a year or so, she wasn't quite there yet, but six months more and everyone would have known who she was. And then absolutely everybody would have loved her. She was amazing. Her songs, her poems, her stories. And all these other girls who were fans... They started writing their own, making their own music, not to be like her, not just that, but because they saw that they could do it too. They were, they were growing, a plague of good. And the guys loved her, of course. They weren't frightened of her, but, but they understood that. They understood that they weren't frightened of her because she didn't want them to be afraid, but that they could be, that she wasn't going to take any shit. Belinda finished the appraisal. But I didn't kill her, I swear. No one killed her. But this guy, this other guy, this guy told her something and she couldn't get it out of her head. She couldn't let it go. She, she fell. She killed herself. She threw herself off Waterloo Bridge. Why do people say that you did it? Belinda asked. Because I was there when she fell. I was, I was trying to stop her, but she jumped anyway. Someone took a picture, her jumping and me standing there reaching for her. They said I was pushing her. If you see the picture, if you see it, you could think that I was pushing her. In that picture. But you aren't. You didn't push her, Belinda said. I swear, I swear to God. God doesn't have much pull here, said Vesica. I swear anyway. Belinda scowled. There's something you're not telling us. Is there, Sulis asked. Walker nodded. There is. 
Carly kept a notebook. It was a diary, a journal. It was where she kept her ideas, lyrics, melodies. There's an album of material in there. I stole the diary. So give it back. I can't, he said. The guy, the guy who told Carly the thing, his wife would get the notebook and she'd just use it to make a quick fortune. She'd turn it into money for today. And it's worth more than that. It's dreams. It's full of dreams and they can live forever if they're treated right. Everyone could dream them. Are you bringing hippie bullshit into the case of a dead girl, Walter? said the last woman. Yeah, I am. We should give him up, said the woman at the end. I don't understand, Sula said. If you're a suspect in a murder, why aren't you being chased by the police? Why is it just the paparazzi out there? There's not enough real evidence, he said. It's just, it's just rumour, a blurred photo and a couple of hysterical stories. But those stories get more convincing the more they're told, the better they're told. And they get told a lot better when they're accompanying photos of me. The more photos, the more sightings, the more rumours start to spread, the easier it becomes to believe that I'm guilty. The law is on its way, believe me. They'll believe the worst soon enough. Who is this guy's wife? What's so important about her? The guy killed Carly, no question. He said the thing that she couldn't stand to hear. He said it because she couldn't stand to hear it. And he was her brother. With Carly dead, everything goes to the brother's side of the family. So what's the wife got to do with it? Walker hung his head as if there was a noose there waiting. That's the other reason I can't tell my side of the story. The day after Carly died, I, I convinced the brother to go. I told him a story of his own and he, and he went away. Everyone thinks he's dead. They think I killed him too. Belinda and Bonnie sat either side of Walker, facing Sulis. The three other women, Shreeberinen, Vesica and the last woman, flanked Sulis. They stared at him. I'm not a good man, Walker Took said, but I'm not an evil man. There's worse things than evil, said Sulis at last. We have some talking to do. Will you wait here while we make our decision, please? They decided to let him stay for the time being. They didn't specify what the time would be being, in Walker's experience, it was usually being a lover who no longer cared for you. He told them he didn't need anything from the car, that he hadn't left anything behind. They told him he could make himself at home. Several hours later, Belinda found him up in the tower, watching the journalists as they gathered at the perimeter fence. The sun was starting to set, and there were more of them now. They were scary, but Belinda was more scary. I'm not going to bite, she assured him. I swear I didn't kill her, or him. I know. But you stole her book. I rescued it, Walker said. Is that your job, to rescue Carly? Are you the only one who can save her? He was cold, even in the setting Californian sun. The horde at the perimeter loomed in the air. I couldn't save her. The book is all that's left. Did you ever think that by staying on the run and not answering everyone's questions, that you're just keeping this image of Carly as a victim, airborne? What? She was vivacious and creative and in control of her life. She had agency and direction. But with her murderer on the loose, no one cares about any of that. She's just another gory, gaudy horror story, the punchline to someone else's drama. Is that what she would have wanted? I don't think any of this is what she would have wanted, but I can't just hand myself over to them. The horde at the perimeter, shuffling incessantly, hungry forever. I loved her, you know. Belinda leaned against Walker. I know, she said. He couldn't taste poison on her words. It was a minor miracle. There were more of them in the morning, and still more by noon. Men and women, drawn from stories elsewhere by the smell of his blood and sturm on the demerong. Thankfully, the women had a store of clothes. He was wearing hemp by sunset. Surely they'll start to lose interest tomorrow, said Bonnie. It makes no sense for them to stay out there. They must have other priorities. Don't they have jobs to go to? The others looked less certain. Belinda stole the notebook away from Walker. It wasn't hard to do. Living more or less constantly underground these last couple of days had taken a toll on him. He didn't sleep at night, so was usually comatose at around five in the morning. He visited him while she slept and found the small red notebook tucked into his jacket pocket. She took it back to her room and leafed through it. Carly's handwriting was clear and neat. The work was set out professionally. Obviously, the author had been certain of the significance of what she was doing. Naturally, this was always going to be the kind of diary that other people read. She leafed, but didn't read much in any detail after that inscription. Right now I love Walter Took, it said, even if he doesn't believe it. One day he'll realise he'll never find me if he keeps looking over his shoulder. As Belinda walked back to Walker's room, she passed Shreeberinen. There was blood around her mouth. They're still out there, Belinda asked. Shreeberinen licked her lips and smiled. 
They wanted me to tell them a story. Did you warn them? Shri Brunan laughed. Of course, I'm not a monster. But they were so hungry for that story. The pale little girl walked on through the catacombs, a little giddy on her tiny bare feet. Belinda slipped the notebook back into Walter's jacket and then slipped into bed next to him. He awoke and looked at her. What's happening? I'm not a monster, she told him, half-truthfully. I heard from Belinda last night, Sulis told Walker over breakfast three weeks later. Is she coming back? he asked hopefully. Sulis nodded. Yes, but she said probably not for a month or so. Oh, don't pout. She usually only visits once a year. There's a reason she's coming back so soon, and I'm sure it isn't because she misses her sisters. I've got to get out of here, Walker said for the sixtieth time since he had arrived. You can check out any time you like, Sulis said, with her usual amused wound of a grin. That's cute, he deadpanned. There were more of them than ever waiting outside. Perhaps there were men of their stripe out there all over the world, looking for him, and these ones were only there by chance, but Walker doubted it. He felt stalked, it felt personal, as if he were the stakes. Only these women were keeping him safe. If they weren't giving him shelter, he'd be pulled apart in minutes. Except, before she had left, Belinda had taken him to one side. She had wanted to kiss him, but also to tell him something that might save his life. You can trust them, she had said of her sisters, but be careful around them, yeah? It doesn't sound like you trust them, he had said. That's only because I know them so well. You don't know them at all, so you're safer. That doesn't make any sense. The closer you are to them, she had told him, the more likely you are to start believing in them. And that's when they get dangerous. Don't forget, they think that the world has ended. That'll do things to your moral compass. What does that even mean, that the world has ended, he said. They don't think that the world will end in meteors and meltdowns. They believe that our culture has died that a plague has taken out our collective imagination, our dreams. They believe that without a common soul, a revolutionary spirit of invention, what have you, everything will start to fall apart. We're already dead. Our bodies just haven't realised it yet. They believe that this bunker is a shelter from whatever is out there annihilating our hearts. That's crazy, said Walker. That's because I'm the one telling you, said Belinda, and I don't believe them. But it's far more convincing the way that they tell it. So don't let them tell it to you, Walker. I'm serious. They'll convince you. She kissed him. I'll be back, don't worry. I wish I could go with you. She smiled. Fighting her way through that horde up there might be difficult. Before she left, he said to her, Where are all the men in here, anyway? Aren't there any guys in this shelter? She replied, not entirely really reassuringly, I'm not the only man-eater on this side of the apocalypse. Be careful. Figure out how to lock your door at night. Bonnie stayed for a bit longer in the bunker. She was helping the women with a machine at the very bottom of the grotto. She wasn't building the machine so much as helping it to evolve. Apparently it had started life as an intoxicated conversation some years before when Bonnie had first stumbled upon the sisters. A teasing series of blueprints had followed, pornography rather than mechanical drawing, really, and then the prototype had been consummated a few days later. Birth had been simple and without complications, and now, whenever Bonnie visited the sisters, they gave her a new series of specifications, and she brought with her the dreams and hallucinations she had been nursing in her absence. So the machine down below grew and grew, spreading up from the bottom of the catacombs like a creeping fungus. Just like a fungus, it was neither animal nor vegetable, but something in between, an unassailable consciousness developing in the dark. It had begun as a collection of abandoned parts, but as Bonnie connected more and more transistors and speakers, threading longer and longer aerials up through the bunker like tendrils of ivy, as she had bolted on more fuses and rheostats, so the machine had started to breathe without support. Walker could hear it along the concrete corridors late at night, and he often found himself following the sound down to the final ring of the catacombs, where Bonnie was frequently to be found still at work. What is it? A final front ear, Vesica had half-joked. Is it a radio? Walker asked. It's the radio, really. It listens to everything. Every transmission broadcast anywhere. Walker shook his head. Don't we have, like, Jodrell Bank for that? Or, you know, the internet? The sisters wanted to be able to listen to what was left in the world in case anyone was left alive. Bonnie smiled, her overalls caked in grease. They're not sure that stuff broadcast over the internet constitutes signs of life. But I hacked a couple of fibre optic pipes just in case the sisters get curious and want to siphon off a little. You can do that. Who do you think taught Wall Street how to do it? I've snaked aerials out into the sea. Transmissions carry further through the water. If you tune closely, you can listen to fishing boats in the Mediterranean, submarine gossip, love songs between whales hundreds of miles apart. 
How can the sisters listen to all of this and think that the world still ended? Walker asked. She wiped her hands and leaned against a tall bank of vintage Bakelite, brushed aluminium and glowing diodes. It was a warm heart in the pit of the cabal, and beneath its breathing Walker could hear whispers from a million other worlds. The sisters define life differently to us. You have to remember that. I'm sure Belinda's explained that to you. Do you think the world's ended? I'll tell you a secret, said Bonnie. 23 years ago, that is, back in 1983, I was looking for a change, or waiting for the end. I had just built something that was truly brilliant and absolutely horrifying, and I was feeling proud of myself and appalled at my lack of judgment and utterly, utterly completely lost. I went travelling and found myself in Kent in the UK, a little place called Dungeness. I was on a beach one night and I met a couple of women and the three of us got involved in something bizarre. After I built my... After I built this other machine, I was absolutely convinced that the world was going to end. That any kind of effort in the world was a fool's errand because it was all pointless. Everything was going to go up in flames at any moment. My machine would prove that. And then that night, everything very nearly did go up in flames. Forever. And the three of us realised that. But then it didn't. The apocalypse passed us by, the three of us on that beach. Like it just swam by. Like some leviathan shark. And the next day the sun came up. And the sun's kept on coming up ever since. So why are you here if you don't believe it? That's a funny question, Bonnie said. They're my friends. Is it a requisite for friendship with you that we have to share every point of view? I don't really have any friends, said Walker. Bonnie found a console and adjusted some dials. The final frontier tuned to a woman's voice. Fruit flies like a banana. A rosy hue settles all around. Artichoke. Vitality. I need you more than want you. Tractor parts. Werewolves brush their teeth. Anime is a cultural malaise. All venom is poisonous, but not all poison is venom. As every fairy tale comes real. Time flies like an arrow. Katamichiken. Gland. Fruit flies like a banana. A rosy hue settles all around. Artichoke. Vitality. I need you more than want you. Tractor parts. Werewolves brush their teeth. Anime is a cultural malaise. All venom is poisonous, but not all poison is venom. As every fairy tale comes real. Time flies like an arrow. Katamichiken. Gland. Fruit flies like a banana. A rosy hue. Bonnie tuned the voice out. What was that? Walker asked. That was a transmission from somewhere in the mamsko choisky district in Russia. I think somewhere along the Mama River. That's been transmitting on a loop, unchanging, since 1954. What does it mean? No one I know knows, said Bonnie. But there are a lot of theories. Lots of them. It's a code to sleeper agents worldwide. Or it's a dead man's transmission broadcasted in a secret missile silo. An interrupted signal would mean that Russia had gone dark, so an automatic retaliatory nuclear strike should be launched. Or it's a developing AI in some abandoned Cold War laboratory. Or I was born in 1954. Maybe it's a message to me. The sisters hear something like this and they wonder if this is what all broadcasts actually are beneath the associations. All noise and no signal. Maybe what we hear is everyday transmissions. She tuned the machine randomly and picked up a long-distance truck driver asking for barbecue pit recommendations out on the Texas panhandle. Are just as meaningless. Maybe it's just our brains fashioning some meaning out of them. Some kind of reflex apophenia reacting to the void. Apophenia? Walker repeated. Like when you see a face in a cloud. You're alone, but your brain tricks you into seeing a message. Isn't that a bit paranoid, Walker said. Arguably, it's the opposite of paranoid. No one's plotting against you because there's no one else left. At dinner, Sulis found Walker sitting up in the tower again, watching the horde at the gates. When there's no more room in hell, she quipped. Yeah, about this end of the world thing, Walker said. Just look at them, she said, gesturing to the journalists. Can you doubt it? Being surrounded by wankers isn't the same as living in the end times, he said. Sulis shrugged. What do you know about toxoplasmosis, she asked. It's that cat virus. It's why pregnant women shouldn't clean out cat litter trays. Yeah, she said. It's a disease transmitted by a parasite that's found in cats. When infected, rats and mice exhibit manic behaviour that seems to indicate that they can no longer properly appreciate risk. They don't even seem to be afraid of cats anymore, which makes them more likely prey. There's a theory that the reason ancient Egyptian culture stalled and stopped developing all those thousands of years ago was because that they suffered a toxoplasmosis pandemic, spread by their close proximity to the cats that they had deified. Of course, maybe it was their toxoplasmosis infection that made them deify the cats. 
It doesn't take much to imagine that parasite spreading further than Egypt, given what a hub Cairo was in those days. How many people do you think have that parasite, or something similar, living inside them, encouraging them to behave contrary to their best impulses, displaying manic behaviour or poor understanding of risk? Spread and spread and spread for a couple of thousand years. We may not have rotten flesh falling off our bodies, but can you be sure that people 5,000 years ago, before that toxoplasmosis epidemic, wouldn't look at us now and not see an army of zombies? That's just silly, Walker said. What? Annihilation? Of course it is, said Sulis. She looked at Walker's plate of food. We're feeding you well here, aren't we? I'm going to pay you back, started Walker. That's not what I meant. It's our pleasure to look after you, of course. I'm just observing. You're being served more food than the rest of us. Vesica's been working in the kitchen this week, hasn't she? What are you saying? I'll have a word with her. Don't worry, but try to fix that lock on the door, why don't you? What? She's fattening you up, dear, Sulis said. Belinda came back a fortnight later. She and Walker hugged, then looked at each other closely, searching for signs. All Walker did these days, he considered, was look for signs. Well, Walker said. I'm just looking for bite marks, she replied. I've been saving myself for you, Walker said. Belinda broke off, still smiling, but Walker looked hurt. You've just been bored, she said. I've been waiting for you to come back. No, you were too scared of the zombies at the gates to leave. He stared at her. That wasn't it. One midnight, a few weeks later, Bonnie was showing him something in the machine. Can you hear that, she said. I don't. Yes, yes I can. Bonnie smiled. She was smarter than the others, Walker thought. They were all smart, really, but Bonnie's intelligence was clear and mechanical. It wasn't distracted. The others were poets. Bonnie was an engineer. I'm interested in everything, she had told him one night, except philosophy. What is that? Walker asked. It's a little girl in Taos, in New Mexico. She's been tinkering with a radio for the last fortnight. She started broadcasting last night. You can't make it out properly because of that cutout. It's an effect of the Roosevelt wind farm, I think. I'm working out an algorithm to account for it. I almost figured it out last night. I could get a receive a clear signal for about 30 seconds. She was singing. I think she's serenading someone. She was singing both sides now. I wonder who she's singing to. That's beautiful. It is, isn't it? Wait a minute. There it is. The little girl's voice came through as clear as a bell. She sang the words a thousand miles away, but she sounded as if she were sitting just between them. Dreams and dreams and fairies The dizzy dancing way that you feel As every fairy tale comes Teach me how it works, Walker asked Bonnie. Some of them aren't journalists, Vesica said, later, licking her lips. Walker was afraid of Vesica. It wasn't just that crack Sulis had made two months before about her fattening him up. It was that brittle light in her eyes. It reminded him of a knife carved out of a splinter of bone, fragile but hard, one good stab in it. Look, she continued, gesturing at the horde. See how they move. Now see how those ones move. Differently. A different species of predator. There are sharks hiding among the piranha. Those are police down there. Walker couldn't see it. Are you sure? I can always tell the law, she leered. She was in her sixties, but her bones weren't crumbling. They were sharpened. I think someone's decided to take you seriously. Perhaps it's time for you to move on. I can't. I'd never get by them. We get by them. He paused. That's because they're scared of you, ladies. It's called the Kali Yuga, Sulis said to him later. The Sanskrit scriptures suggest time is an ongoing cycle, like the passing of the seasons, an orbit around God, and that we are currently in the age of vice. It could last 6,480 years. It could last 432,000 years. But it's a period of time where we are farthest from the divine. We have succumbed to dishonesty, treachery and manipulation. We are riven with hypocrisy. Plagues of avarice and wrath swarm the earth. It's the end of the world. Do you believe it? asked Walker. I don't believe in anything, Walker, replied Sulis. I hang in doubt. My philosophy is a gallows. But it would answer a lot of questions, wouldn't it? If you wanted your questions answered. So you're saying I'm living in the age of Kali? 
Different Carly, dear. I count three. The goddess, the demon, and your dead girlfriend. Don't get them confused. I'll be careful. The goddess Carly Ma is possibly the oldest goddess of creation. She wears a necklace of 50 human skulls. Did you know that? Each skull has a letter carved into it. In this way, the 50-letter Sanskrit alphabet comes from Kali. Alphabets and the written word almost always come from the goddesses. In Egypt, land of toxoplasmosis, it's Isis. In Rome, Carmenta. In Scandinavia, the Norns. In Babylon, the Fates. A letter is a talisman, a symbol. Aggregated, they enable expression. Without expression, there can be no conception, no creation. Magic spells and all that. Something out of nothing. Mother, Ma. In Egypt, Mart meant truth, to see. Mart was one of the original goddesses too. Her symbol was the eye. It was stolen by Horus. That's the sexy eye symbol you see everywhere. Utchat, it's called. In Sumeria, 5,000 years ago, there was the eye goddess. Hers was the all-seeing eye from which no crime could be hidden. Similarly, Uraeus, the goddess cobra, set into Egyptian headdresses and representative of the third eye of insight. The eye, like the alphabet, was always originally female. Some people believe that we repeatedly come back to the symbol of the eye because of the impact made upon us as children when our mothers first looked at us. Or maybe the eye is a vulva. Circles are females in all directions, after all. Even diameter means, literally, goddess mother, dear mater. The division of the eternal circle between what is known and what is unknown by the diameter. Vulva, evolution, revolution, revolver. When society turned parochial, turned patriarchal. When Horus stole the eye from Mart, when the sun in the sky became the son of the father, the men began to resent the all-seeing eye of their mother and they corrupted it. They turned it into an eye of judgment. They turned it into an evil eye. So the mother became a witch. We were goddesses. And then they made us witches. But which is just a question. And curiosity and doubt will live far longer than faith. Walker sat silently. I received a letter from Bonnie this morning, Sulis continued. She says that you're an expert with the final frontier now. You can fix it as easily as she can. She says that you won't need to come back to fix it as long as you are here. Men stole the eye and now you have our ear. She smiled. He froze. I'm just teasing. I'm delighted you have stayed. If nothing else, Sulis gestured upwards, you have ensured a never-ending parade of gentlemen callers. Bonnie had actually warned Walker before she had left. The sisters, she said, they've got a violence to them. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but it makes me uncomfortable sometimes. You're not the first one to tell me that, he said. You could always leave. He shook his head. You know, said Bonnie, I like to use this place to recharge my batteries. The sisters have a grim energy, but it's a useful energy. I leave here inspired, thinking thoughts I would never have had otherwise. Belinda comes here because every now and again she finds the world to be a hard and desperate place. The sisters give her asylum, a place to hide. Is it possible, do you think, that you've stayed here all these months because you want to be punished? Do you think this is all you deserve now? Walker was silent. You don't have to listen to me. Bonnie said. What do I know? This is psychology and I don't understand psychology. For all I know, you're only here because you don't have any other contact details for getting in touch with Belinda. He smiled. But you should think about what you're doing here a little. People go missing here. Try not to look like no one would miss you. Come on, said Walker. You're the one I trust not to be paranoid. Animals in the wild, said Bonnie. They try and look unappealing, unappetising. I believe the sisters only eat the dead, so my advice to you, don't look dead. Keep asking questions. Change things. Take care of the machine. Pay attention to the weather. He looked a little stricken, illuminated by the glow of the machine. Belinda came back later, in time for Halloween. She had missed him. I can't believe you're still here, she said. Her grin this time wasn't hungry, it was satisfied. I had to be sure you knew where to find me. I wouldn't want to tell the sisters where I'd be. Very wise, Belinda said. They went to bed and told each other their stories. Belinda had been looking for an old friend she'd used to travel with, a man named Michael she'd lost track of after a catastrophe six years before. Why are you looking for him? Walker asked, and she smiled at the faint smell of jealousy on his breath. It's nothing like that. You're more to his taste than I am. But he knew my dad, and thinking about your dad has made me think about mine. What do you mean? My dad died when I was young too, Belinda said. I don't think about mine much, he said. 
He took a walk off a roof. He was trying to get away from me. I was only two. I don't think about him much at all. I was 15 when Mai died. I don't think about mine much either. It'll be 10 years next year. Walker smiled and stopped. Oh my God, my dad died 20 years ago. Exactly 20 years ago. He paused and she sat up to look at him more clearly. Are you okay? She said. Of course I am. He left me. Before he even knew me. That tells me all I need to know about him, doesn't it? Just because the number ends in a zero, it sounds like it's important. Dad had worked himself to death, Walker knew. He had been obsessed with his job, been unable to find any point in anything else. For whatever reason, that way of life had led him to a rooftop and the only fathomable exit route. If nothing else, it was a lesson how not to live. But just then it occurred to Walker that he was the son of a man who had killed himself by throwing himself off into the sky, and here he was, twenty years later, living underground. A man called Walker, who hadn't moved a mile in any direction for months and months and... Belinda and Walker were lying on the makeshift cot that Walker had put together in the small room adjoining the machine. He lived down here now, away from the cell with the broken lock, in the shadow of the outside world. He felt safer down here by the machine. He looked at Belinda. Her face was beautiful in the pale glue glow of the machine. The machine hummed appropriately. And now here you are looking after their magic radio, laughed Belinda, changing the subject. Earning my keep seemed a wise course of action when I started to live amidst cannibal holocaust witches. And Belinda was a witch, as were all the other sisters. Uncompromising but full of doubt and questions, they turned catastrophe into something new and unexpected. They found life in doom. A furious invention, a ferocious curiosity, growing something out of nothing right at the end of the world. Belinda laughed out loud. I just got it. You are the witchy tar lineman. I am a lineman for the carven. I like that. He started humming the song, then stopped. I love that song, said Belinda. So do I, he replied. Isn't it weird? Some songs just carry weight, don't they? Like there's something coded in them that you always react to. Something magic, said Belinda. How does that work? Walker asked. Just notes and a beat and a voice. Associations, said Belinda. Walker sang a few words. And I need you more than want you. And I want you for all time. I love that line, said Belinda. I think my dad sang it to me. You're not supposed to say this out loud, of course, but I think I prefer the Johnny Cash version to the Glen Campbell original. Walker kept humming. The notes charted an alphabet bestowed by goddesses who became witches, sung to this woman by a voice long dead. The one that gets me is both sides now, said Belinda. The way she holds that note at the end of the line. Well, something's lost, but something's gained in living. That reminded Walker of something. He went over to the machine and tuned it to the girl in New Mexico. She was still singing Joni Mitchell into her transmitter 1,000 miles to the east, still serenading her stranger. Belinda smiled at him. That's beautiful, she said. Who is she? I don't know. I just heard her singing in the wires. They listened for a while. What song really gets you then? Belinda asked Walker. It's a bit corny. Well, I assumed that, she said. He smiled. Johnny Mathis, When a Child is Born. It's soft, but it just builds and builds. And it's so sad, but it's so hopeful all the time. When he sings, and it's silly, but I choke every time. When he sings... Belinda finished the lyric, lying next to him and perfect. For a spell or two, no one seems like I said, said Walker, a bit corny. Must be an association from Christmas. When you're a kid, those songs go in deep. Johnny Cash, Joni Mitchell, Johnny Mathis. I wonder what that means. Belinda looked at him, watching moods tremble and tumble through him. I'm pregnant, she told him. She was going to keep the baby, but she wasn't going to stay in the bunker. The child was his too, and she would come back to visit, but she wouldn't live there with him. Walker understood. 
When she left again a fortnight later, he told her that he loved her. Belinda grinned at him. I really don't know love at all, she assured him. But of course, now he needed a plan. He didn't know for sure, but he could see that the sisters would appreciate the poetry in the idea that if he were leaving behind a child, they could eat him and it not be murder. And of course, now he was going to have a child, he had a whole new set of nerve endings that the zombies could torture. With a child, he was snaking off into the world like Bonnie's aerials, like the ivy tattoos that the sisters all wore. There were consequences now. His thoughts always ran to the same conclusion. With a child, this isn't the end of the world anymore. There were more and more zombies every day now, it seemed to Walker. Vesica was right. They weren't all journalists. Some of them were police. He was sure of it. The tone had modulated. Rumour was being replaced with law. There were convictions to their thinking. He was being judged. Minds had changed. He was about to become a criminal. One night he spotted some of them trying to climb the barrier fence. The ladies were hungry and loved that, of course, so the zombies held back again. But they wouldn't hold back forever. Time was running out. He tinkered with the machine, endlessly, learning how it worked, discovering what it could do, dreaming of what it could do tomorrow. Belinda's song stayed with him, of a lonely man working the lines, always wary that a turn in the weather could bring down the system and silence the voices. And if it snows, that stretched down line won't ever stand the strain. In his head he was becoming some kind of ethereal weatherman, but feeling for mood as much as climate. Well, if he was living with witches, then it was probably better to call him a weatherman. Doubt opened his mind. Questions gave him options. He started to see things from both sides now. One night, or one day, it was impossible to tell underground in the catacombs, he tuned the machine to a new voice. Except it was an old voice. The stripper explained it to me, said the voice that came in over the vines. She said that when she started, she was told by the other girls that she needed a new name. Walker knew the voice. He couldn't place it, but he knew it. He searched the frequency for clues. It was something siphoned off from the internet, a podcast or something. Something exotic, continued the voice that he knew. Something that would get the blokes interested hard. She said that she called herself mislaid. It was the voice of Walker's father, dead 20 years. The voice went on, swallowed by other voices, but never for long. His father was the heart of this story, and it returned again and again. That isn't what I asked, Catherine. It may be what it costs, but why would I pay it? The voice of his father, the businessman, obsessed with his work, who always had something to focus on that wasn't back at his home, who had been broken by work and chosen to die a businessman than live a father. That wouldn't be him. That wouldn't be Walker. He'd be a better father. He wouldn't give in. He would live. He would just find a way to live. Just fucking do it! In this story, his father was angrier than Walker had remembered. Did you ask me up here because you didn't want me to shout at you in front of everyone in the office? Is that it? It's just one disappointment after another these days, isn't it? Walker held his breath. Another person's voice. A woman's voice. Let me get that for you. And then a scream and then a small murder. Let me get that for you. The zombies above him. The witches around him. Let me get that for you. One child left without a dad and another child on the way. It had to be a coincidence, some silly podcast drama featuring the voice of someone who sounded like his dad. No, that was rubbish. His dad had died when he was two. Walker had no idea what dad's voice had sounded like. But they'd said his name in the story, hadn't they? Danton Took. Did they say that? Or had he imagined it? He couldn't remember for sure. Walker Took's father had killed himself. This was one of the first things Walker had learnt in his life. He attempted to reload the transmission but it was gone, no trace anywhere. It was the first thing he had known for a fact. Danton Took had killed himself. Everything else in the world followed from this fact. He looked at Bonnie's machine and wished that Belinda was there with him, because for the first time in his life, he felt and believed in the doubt. The machine glowed in the dark, was warm to his touch. He had to stay alive. He had to change their minds. He had to pay attention to the weather. Walker Took, who had been named Walter by his father, had a brand new idea at last. When Belinda returned, she found Walker almost as changed as she was. Silas told her that these days he never left the machine's side. She told Belinda that he was clearly afraid of the zombies, who were at plague proportions at the gates of the bunker now. She also told her that some of her sisters were starting to wonder whether their house guest's time had come. He's been with us almost a year, said Silas. 
Lambs get a year to gamble and play, don't they? Don't you dare, said Belinda. Well, we can't have them up there forever, said the elder witch. For one thing, it's making us lazy. Who could be bothered looking for free-range dead when there's battery dead right up there on the doorstep? The two of them laughed. Go on, said Sulis. Go and say hello. She descended to the lowest circle of the pit. Hi, she said to Walker. Belinda was gorgeous. The dye had grown out of her hair and her face was flushed and freckly. Her left hand never left the beautiful tight balloon of her tummy. She looked like she could just float off into the sky. Walker was pale, but his eyes danced and sparked like a bonfire on the beach at midnight. He put down a notebook and bounded over to her. He kissed her and there was madness in the kisses. You're beautiful, he said. You're so beautiful. How long? There were tears in her eyes. She was amazed to discover. About two weeks now, give or take. You're having the baby here, Walker said hopefully. She shook, her, she shook her head. Sorry, a friend in San Francisco is a midwife. I'm heading up there in a day or two. He realised that he was standing in a coven. Yes, of course, that's sensible. What have you been doing, Belinda asked. I've turned the ear into a mouth, Walker said, as if that explained anything. Go on, she said. Bonnie built the perfect radio, but I needed a transmitter. It's been a steep learning curve, but I figured it out. Belinda recognised the notebook he was carrying. It was Carly's. He'll never find me if he keeps looking over his shoulder, she had said. What are you doing? Everyone knows that Carly is dead, Walker said. I know. And I think that was my mistake. What? He tuned the machine to a bedroom in New Mexico. A young woman was singing, serenading some other stranger. But she wasn't singing an old Joni Mitchell song anymore. The words and harmony were completely new, never before heard. But they reminded Belinda of someone. You gave away Carly's music. I broadcast it to that radio in New Mexico. I didn't tell her to use it, but I spelled out the notes. I read out the lyrics. I passed her Carly's alphabet. I waited to see what she would do. The girl was singing in her own voice, in her own style, but they could both hear Carly there, in her mood and her mind, alive again. So I pick over the bones of my poor strip mind soul and all that's there is a dread dead ember. It's then that I know I'm not travelling to forget. I'm travelling to find something to remember. She's been singing Carly's last music for a week now. I'm about to boost the signal. What? She's been singing into a transmitter that only someone within ten miles of her bedroom and this machine can hear. I'm about to loop the transmission around the world. Does she know you're going to do that? No, said Walker. That's not fair on her. I know, he said. It'll be a catastrophe. But it won't be the end of the world. Walker took, boosted the signal. By the morning, all the zombies had vanished. The story had gotten loose that somehow Carly Shanksmere was alive again, somewhere in New Mexico. Everyone had changed their minds. Convictions had been lost. Sulis told Belinda and Walker the news herself. She wandered down to the bowels of the catacombs and found them both sleeping entwined in the glow of the machine. A rosy hue had settled all around. The two of them packed their belongings and said their goodbyes. Have you ever been to San Francisco? Belinda Payne asked Walker Took. Never, he replied. Most everyone who ever goes missing invariably ends up in San Francisco, Belinda said. The morning sun was bright and shining. They looked straight ahead. There was nothing but blue skies. I can see clearly now, Walker said. Is that Johnny Mathis again, she asked. No, that was Johnny Nash. They drove off. The radio turned real loud. A couple of hours later, they stopped for breakfast and ate eggs and mushrooms. When the baby was born, of course they called her Joni. To be continued.